Hi, everybody. <clears throat> it is the 26th of January, 2023. Time for episode 146 of my live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. This is my personal YouTube channel. Thank you so much for joining me. You might know me from such places as Showtime or CBS, but this place, well, this one's all mine. Uh, happy that you joined me today. It's a fun one today. I think there's no big fights this weekend. Oh, Archer Baterbiev is back. Baterbiev, Baterbiev, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, taking on Anthony Yard. I don't know how many of you really care about that, but uh, better beef, better beef, better beef. Whoo, 100% finishing rate, the only champion in all of boxing who can claim that, an absolute dynamic force. Late in his 30s, though, not a lot of time left. The idea here is if he beats Yard, he's going to fight Bivol, the guy who beat Canelo and then Zerto Ramirez this past year, who became fighter of the year. So he wins this one, he meets Bivol, uh, again, in theory, at some point this year. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. We could talk about that or anything else you want to get to. So thumbs up if you're watching. Yeah, please hit subscribe. Um, I'm trying to think of any news and notes. Uh, oh, yes, I'll get to those in just a second. But let's, you know, let's start this off the right way, shall we? And we're back. All right. Um, reminder. The, we are down to basically the end of the tickets. Uh, there's just a chunk left, uh, and then there will be no more. So if you want to come see us, this will be soon, February 8th, London, England. Brian Campbell and myself, Brian Campbell and I, will be in London, England for the Pod Live Festival. We're headlining it. We're the only Americans there. You can come see us. And oh, by the way, Dan Hardy is going to be with us on stage. By the way, also recording a ton of other interviews the three days that we're there. Plus, we're going to be doing some YouTube collabs with some uh, big creators based out of the UK. Like, we're going to have a big trip planned. But you can come see us February 8th. It's going to be a lot of fun. So come check us out. You can put your phone up to the screen there. Put your QR code up there. Get the tickets. Or you can go to pod-live.com if you are living in the UK or you will be there around that time. Okay? Again, I'm trying to push these tickets, man, because one, we're already at a level where it'll look pretty full, so I'm not so much worried about the look, but this is it. This is going to be probably our one and only time doing this, so come check us out, yeah? All right, as you guys know, as is customary, I put up a thread uh, about 24 hours ahead of time to do this for the questions. You guys fill it up, and then we pull from there. We go to the youtube.com slash Luke Thomas community tab. And that will be that. So let me introduce that into the stream. And you can see it there. We'll use this system instead. But uh, there you go. There it is. Okay. All right. Uh, anything else? Oh, look. They got the... Uh, I went to the dentist today. My teeth still need to be whitened because <laughs> they're ugly. But I don't know if you noticed. I got the chip fixed. See that? I got the chip in my tooth fixed. I tried... Uh, I only had to get two fillings. Then they filled this in. Uh, I hadn't gone to the dentist in like four years. I know none of you care about this, but I just tried uh, nitrous oxide. I wanted to see how it felt to a small thing. I mean, I was thinking I was there for like in and out of the front door, maybe in an hour. It wasn't a big deal. But I just wanted to see how it went. My nose is so messed up. I can't lay that far backwards. And then they put the apparatus on your nose. But I couldn't hardly inhale anything. And my one nostril is like almost sealed shut. It was awful. Yeah, it didn't work at all. So I would have rather just had the local anesthetic. That was really fine, to be honest with you. It didn't really add much. So, um, okay. With that out of the way, let's take a sip of this delicious coffee that I got from. This is Cub Swanson's cup, by the way. Like Not like his actual cup. This is the one he sells, but you get the idea. All right. With that in mind, let's get to these questions, shall we? All right. First things first. 
Luke, do you think Dariush, Benil Dariush, obviously, should even take the potential fight with Oliveira for the number one contender spot? Or should he wait it out to see if he'd get the title shot because he is basically the only person in the top five who hasn't received the opportunity yet? As fun as Dariush versus Oliveira fight sounds for the fans, it seems as if it'd be a better career choice for Dariush to wait it out for a title shot. Your thoughts? Um, you might be surprised by my answer here. I'm not so sure that's the wisest course of action, candidly. Um, all of these situations are going to be in very much context-dependent, historical precedent-dependent, personal needs, personal goals-dependent. You might expect me to say, and I don't think this is the wrong answer, yes, he should wait it out because that's an enormous risk to fight Charles Oliveira. It's very difficult to defeat him. Um, you know, he's extremely talented, extremely well-rounded. He's as good in MMA jiu-jitsu, maybe as Benil Dariu, so, like, certainly threatening in that level. And obviously when he's on the feet and he's dealing, he is also, also a lot to deal with, certainly up there as well. And you might say, like, why take that? If, to your point, if you just wait it out, another shot might come your way. And it seems to me like, in many cases, I might actually prescribe something like that. But in Benil Dariusha's specific case, and, and also like, you know, know your worth in these larger negotiations. But candidly, he is not the kind of guy who's really trying to maximize dollars, right? I've had an interview with him. Um, you know, you've heard him speak to Submission Radio and many other outlets. It's not that he doesn't want to make money, but he is he's one of the very few guys who does not appear to be chiefly or even majority um, driven by the idea that he could make a lot of money again he wants to make i think money for his family and whatnot and, and to give away to his the various causes that he believes in i think he's very involved in like christian missionary and charity work but he's not very heavily motivated by that what he is heavily motivated by is getting the title right and, and getting it and so you're asking like well couldn't he just wait around for it but if you have picked a style of getting to this point that is based on zero, not flash in his game, but zero flash as an identity. And I hate that the MMA market moves based on personality and identity, but it does. Like right? You can be mad at the rain. It still falls. So that's simply the way that it goes. I would actually recommend, you know, very much deliberating over this. It's not obvious to me that waiting is a horrible choice. But in given the way in which he has built his career, given his priorities, I actually think he needs to do something really spectacular to get that title shot. I think the chances of him waiting around and being gifted one versus um, going out and seizing this opportunity, again, given his particular concerns, I think the chances of him being gifted one just by virtue of his turn are much lower, much lower than we actually think that they they are. I think if they can find another way to sneak someone in there in that role, um, they might. And if somebody who has an exciting moment, an exciting call out, uh, some, somehow captures the fan base's imagination, they will only not skip you if they truly can't find a way without enraging enough of the fan base or, or you know, totally punting or whatever dollars they could make, right? Like you can, and I've, I've called it before, you can do the John Fitch method. It will work. You can do it. But your path to that title is going to be much longer, and they're very much not inclined to give you rematches, especially since, in his case, St. Pierre whooped him, basically. Uh, if you've never seen St. Pierre versus Fitch, it wasn't close. It wasn't close. Um, certainly not for long stretches of it. So the way I would look at it is, if I'm Benil Dariush, and again, all of the things I've already mentioned, all of the greater context involving him, 
I would say, yeah, if you lose to him, it's not great, but you wouldn't be that far out of the running. You know, he could bounce back, I think, relatively quickly, although that certainly is debatable too. But what I would say is I just feel like waiting around for him is very uncertain. Somebody who has built his name entirely based off of achievements can't really stop here. If you've built on nothing but the achievement over names that only the matchmakers really know the importance of and the fans really don't, not not in great detail, yeah, you should probably fight Oliveira. Because then, yeah, losing to him is bad, but it's not cataclysmic. But beating him, which, by the way, Dariush, I think, would be very competitive with him, whether you think Oliveira would win or lose. Dariush is competitive with him. Uh, I think you win that, and they won't. At that point, they actually won't deny you. At that point, that would be... That would Again, they could always deny you, but my my feeling is that would be such an achievement that the fan base would then begin to rally for him a little bit. Um, and, you know, and it's not like he's not an action fighter. He's an action fighter, you know, very skilled action fighter, but an action fighter just the same. So in many, many cases, I would recommend not taking something like this. In most cases, I would recommend it. In Benil Dariush's case, I might recommend taking it. Um, okay, let's go back to this one. Luke, with the state of fighter pay as it is, what do you see as the primary function of an MMA manager and their role overstated, excuse me, and their role, I guess, being, he he left out a word here, being overstated in general? Also, do you view the majority of MMA managers as a net benefit to most fighters? Um, I don't know if I know, I view the majority of MMA managers as a net benefit. That, to me, is pretty debatable. If they're providing um, legal oversight to contracts, then that is very valuable. It's a basic service that you wouldn't need managers for, but you could at least say would be potentially, based on their charges, a net benefit, like under that very rubric. Let me just explain to you, like, what the... There's a couple of managers that I have in mind, and sort of let me tell you what they do for their clients. Number one, here's one thing they have. Almost no other clients in MMA, right? Now, I'm not telling you that if they do have many clients in MMA, that that automatically means they're terrible or whatever. That's not exactly what I'm saying. What I am saying to you, though, is the very the ones that I see having the most effect in the sport, in my opinion, are the ones that aren't trying to have many irons in the fire, right? They have a very direct purpose. They're there to represent this person or that woman or that guy. And that's really their only client. They might have one or two others in the sport or something like that. And again, I think Paradigm has many and they do a pretty good job overall. So there are exceptions to this rule. Again, everything is going to be sort of like a general picture of things. But from what I've seen, they don't have many. Let's say this. The smaller the client base, typically the better, I'll put it. And then the the very best ones to me only have just one client or one or two. First. Second, what they do is they are useful to the fighter because they might have contacts in uh, law that specialize in the kind of contracts that would be valuable with situations like this. They might have particular negotiating skills, right? So they can find not just lawyers to look over this, but very high-priced, extremely specific, very, very good, talented uh, litigators or essentially just counsel to provide them a lot of different ways to approach situations with the promoter, right? And they're very, very gifted at that. The other thing that they do, might have is they might have a lot of existing leveraging ability within the media. They have media friends and not just MMA media friends. They have Rolling Stone media friends. They have New York Times media friends. 
they have Time Warner media friends. They have people in television and radio. I've noticed that a lot of these guys, they're really able to leverage existing contacts in wide parts of the world that uh, even very popular MMA fighters wouldn't ordinarily have a direct access to. They really provide those kinds of services. And even if they don't have those contacts, they're pretty good about mustering attention in those worlds for that fighter, a, a level of media outreach that would otherwise be somewhat inaccessible. And they also serve as gatekeepers as well, right? Like not letting in MMA lickmyballs.com to do an interview with, you know, whoever, right? They keep them at arm's length. So there's this sort of, uh, there's this firewall approach as well as this outreach approach. And there's this sort of general counsel litigator um, assistance that they're able to provide. So there's a lot of layers there. On top of it, what I've really noticed is they just are very good about helping them manage the larger parts of their business operation. How much money should you be spending on your camp? How much money should you be spending on your entourage? How much money should you be investing? Where should you be investing it? With who? Uh, people come to these rich, people come to these very elite fighters with a lot of business pitches helping them work through the business pitch, helping them work through which ones make sense for your brand, which ones actually make money, which ones are good for you. For other ones, I've seen managers for guys who do a lot of video gaming on the side that have been really good about helping them develop that in a very professionally buttoned up way in many cases so they can use that as a primary or at least a very significant chunk of their day-to-day, month-to-month, and annual income. So they can do a lot of other things. It's really taking guys at a premier level of their organ of their professional. Um, it's, uh, yes, it's helping guide them there too. But when they get to a certain level, they need someone who can help them work through. They are a business, and they need people to help them work through that. Whether it's litigation issues, contract issues, business development issues, media relations issues, they need people in their orbit that can do all these things so they can focus on actually what they do, which is fighting. The best managers I've seen tend to do that, and that is very valuable. But that service doesn't really apply to the overwhelming majority of MMA fighters, UFC or otherwise. Not many will really exist in a world like that. And for ones who are below that, it's not to say that there aren't good managers who do work in bulk. It's not to say there aren't good managers who can work with someone who's a step below the very best. Like there's a valuable place for that too. Um, I would just say that, you know, the the less famous they get and the less money they make, operationally their need for a manager just seems to contradict the like when you actually see that what a real manager valuably does when someone is at a very uh you know nascent or underdeveloped stage of a career it, it is possible a manager could get them to the next stage but it seems quite unlikely it seems that the the two are much more aligned in my opinion from my experience the higher up the food chain you go, if you're not really moving in that way, um, devoting a significant chunk of your financial return based on fighting for managerial oversight, it might be a, it might be of a very limited uh, value. Situationally dependent, they have to figure that out for themselves. And someone's going to hear this and be like, oh, but I know someone who's outside of the way in which you've described it that is really great for this fighter. Fine, fine. Again, there will be exceptions to every rule. This is a composite picture I'm drawing for you of what it looks like in a best case scenario, let's say, right? That's kind of like what a really good version of it is. Uh, there can be a lot of different kinds, but the further you go and twist and undulate, you get away from where it's actually like really valuable to somewhat valuable, marginally valuable, not valuable at all, right? I hope that helps. If it doesn't, email me. 
uh question about the resume review there's a resume oh remind folks there's a resume review right now out on the mk channel as well as i put it out yesterday i know it was late but i still think it's pretty good i did a breakdown for brandon moreno and how he beat devison figueredo at ufc 283 so please go take a look at that if you would be so inclined we'll put that in the uh, description box below just the same so okay let's go back to the questions uh okay i'll do this one luke i was wondering if you could comment on a twitter post by dean thomas addressing fighter pay quote if you really care about the fighters, I saw this tweet, by the way, the absolute best thing you can do is go to your local MMA gym, ask the coach who the hardest working, working fighter in the room is, then see if you can help that fighter with equipment, monthly tuition, or a website to help them get exposure, end quote. I love his work, this person writes, but this seems incredibly short-sighted. Thank you for your time. As always, your work is greatly appreciated. Um, okay, so let me just say a couple things about Dean Thomas that you may not know. Dean is great. I consider Dean one of my how do i explain this exactly i mean he doesn't serve in this role in any kind of official capacity but dean has been enormously helpful to me in my career not so much with like hey meet this guy and uh, a, a, a job came out of it or something like that no but like if i have a question about technique i can just shoot him a whatsapp he'll he, he's recorded videos for me where he's walked me through various footwork things that we've seen in fights and like why a guy pivoted a certain way and stepped a certain way. Um, like we, he's done that for me. And, um, you know, he has given me advice about the industry and, and other things like Dean is, um, Dean is a remarkable talent in a lot of ways. He was a decorated fighter a decorated coach. He's a funny guy. I think he has sort of like a budding broadcasting career as well. Good for him. He should. And one of the things I really love about Dean, and something Dean and I have discussed, is that, that's why it's relevant to this portion of, this, of the discussion, is that Dean is not very sensitive. Dean believes, in fact, that one of the biggest problems that fighters have is that they are outrageously sensitive to the point where they'll cut people off and out of their life unnecessarily because they have some axe to grind. They have a very much a me versus the world mentality, which is also part of like an partly an occupational necessity, but they take it far enough where it can actually be damaging to themselves. So he's always told me, if you have criticism, like, it's cool with me. Like, I get it. It's not personal. You're just making a professional one. In that spirit, I approach the following answer, right? I appreciate that I can say this without Dean getting bitter. And of course, if I, he says he might feel the same, he might look at what I'm saying here and decide that he would like to respond. And I have to accept that. And I will, because I think very highly of his reasoning, but here he is just totally wrong. I mean, I love Dean very much, but this is not correct. Now, actually, let me put a slight asterisk in that. The reason why it's not right is because the absolute best thing you can do about caring about fighters, he doesn't mention pay specifically, although the remedies he offers, monthly tuition for training costs, equipment, training costs, uh, a website to help them get exposure, that would be also sort of business costs and some technical knowledge. So you have to pay someone for that it ends up being a conversation about fighter pay. Um, so if the, if the issue is fighter pay, I mean, I, you get this, you get a sort of a similar, but different criticism. A lot of, from a lot of different folks being like, you know, I noticed that you guys always talk about UFC. You don't really mention anything about PFL or Bellator or, you know, one, it's like, well, first of all, that's not really true. We, we very much attack them when they deserve it, especially one um, with their sort of nonsensical, nonsensical, you know, infrastructure that they've built around weigh-ins and whatnot uh, and the ridiculous things they've said about drug testing but but they are relatively small players it's like complaining that you know uh the faucet is broken and 
now you're worried like what that means for the entire house probably nothing probably just a broken faucet um the real issue is that there is a market and there is one player that has a enormous share of that market they have not only the majority of the mma talent i, I don't know if folks ever understand this the UFC, out of all the dollars that get made in MMA in a calendar year the, of any player, any space, anywhere in the industry, the majority of the money is made by the UFC in the entire industry of anyone making money collectively. How much money is made in MMA in a year? The UFC collects not just the majority of it, the vast majority of it, right? So to me, focusing on like individual sponsorships in your local community versus addressing what is clearly a... Or I should say, very arguably, uh, a monopoly within the industry, depressing wages, seems rather silly. Uh, quite, quite honestly, it seems like why would you ever compare that to fixing monopoly? Fixing monopoly such that they can, such that they will, you know. And when they have remedied monopoly in other industries historically, in the various ways that they have, these have almost, almost exclusively been very good things. There's very few monopolies that have ever been broken up that people were like, damn, that was the industry was so much better before it. It's quite rare, actually. So if you actually want to do it in the way in which he's describing uh, taking care of fighters, right, the best thing that could absolutely be done would be to raise wages by whatever remedy of the uh, how the industry functions to do that. Whether you think that's the Ali Act, whether you think that's a union, whatever that method is going to be matter of factly far better than anything described in this particular way. Uh, you know, some kind of local chair, like folks charity is almost never almost, well, I should say, yeah, I think I could say this comfortably in general charity can't be um, what is ordained or demanded by law. Right. Charity is part of the scam a little bit. The charity itself could be well-intentioned. And in fact, the effects that they have can be, in certain cases, enormous, significant, meaningful. But charity can also be used in a way where the dominant players in the space never have to make change as long as people decide that charity is actually the way to remedy any situation, not structural changes to how the market actually operates. Right. So it's all kind of part of this idea that like the way in which we can cover if we're, you know, one of these entities, the way in which we can cover for um, people's expectations that we do more is to encourage and then even donate to or be a part of a charity or some kind of charitable cause. People feel good about charities. They feel good about contributing. They feel good about trying to do stuff like that, which, you know, I understand and I think is a good thing. But the real way to get change is to get the law to make change, period. That's that's the, whatever remedy you think is best. That's going to be better than that. I will say this, though. he has He's on to something, which is to say, not as a remedy to the situation, but if, or as like the best choice that we have. But what he's trying to identify is there's a lot of really talented guys or girls who trying to get going are living in very destitute conditions. They'll live in dorms. They'll live in, I mean, you name it, in, under the mats, under the blah, blah, blah. They eat just enough to train and, and, and so on. Like they could majorly have their lives improved in very critical stages of their career. If they had some kind of benefactor to help them out, which isn't to say that on its own, it's a bad idea as a way to remedy the 
challenges of fighter treatment, it's not among the top things. I would. Charity is never going to be under the top ways to fix a problem. Almost, almost never. Almost never. It's just not very effective uh, relative to the law. Uh, let's see. Okay. Look with the wild headlines revolving around the UFC in the first month of 2023. Could this be a year of? Could this year be a turning point? Excuse me. In the organization's history, there's quite a few unknowns as far as how things play out, but the negative momentum feels notable. MK all day. Yeah, thanks. Well, they hard to say. It did feel like at the height of the TRT era, there was so much bad press that they had to do something. Now, it turned out that a lot of that press was, um, I think, can rightly be... And some of the press, by the way, that I... Some of the ways in which I gave coverage, I think, could be considered hysterical or over the top or a little bit dramatic or just in terms of the volume of attention, not really necessary. That wasn't the way we felt at the time, hindsight being 2020. But in any case, there was so much of it that they felt compelled to do something. None of the individual situations that the UFC is currently involved in feel quite like that. They don't feel like, oh, like, are they okay over there in Las Vegas? Like, is this business destined for some kind of now downturn because it can't button itself up they got reinstated in ontario for a betting i don't know what the situation is with new jersey but you know they've they've pulled out james kraus from the ufc like a burrow tick and anything else associated with them and of course there's now investigations from federal law enforcement into all, all of that you guys all know the story i don't have to tell you anything new there um but at least that process is ongoing, and I'm assuming the UFC is facilitating it in whatever way they're being asked to. Um, so it doesn't feel like any of this stuff is cataclysmic or in that way or really like inflection point territory. I will say this, though. Um, like with the Dana White stuff, like whether he should or shouldn't have suffered some kind of professional consequence, people ask me like, are they really going to do nothing? And, you know, again, we don't, we've been down this road before. I don't need to re go, go down it again. However, I do wonder if like this shortened his overall leash a little bit with the public, or at least even with the people who pull the strings, the Ari Emanuels of the world, right? Where it's like, they didn't do anything this time. And people are going to get the impression like they'll never do anything. I'm less convinced by that. I think that they will have, not that like him hitting his wife would happen over again, but some other kind of public embarrassment or whatever, such that that happens. Like, how much did this shorten his leash? It's debatable. It's deb to answer the question. I think a lot of people have been turned off by it. They might there might be like a okay. It's all kind of coinciding with a bit of a larger problem that the UFC is having right now, which is that they don't have a lot of stars, big stars in active rotation. They've got a lot of events. They've got a lot of good events. They've got some great events. They don't have any huge events, not for the general public. That's the biggest purchasing audience for pay-per-views, right? That's the biggest group is the most casual. Coinciding with that are all these other, I won't say insignificant, but uh, troublesome headlines around various business practices that either weren't buttoned up or you know, Dana's doing whatever the hell he's doing on New Year's Eve and stuff like that. That all culminates in a way that brings a larger picture of 
concerns about long-term business interests, but to me appears partly cyclical. The problems themselves don't necessarily mean much, but like what I, what I go back to is what you have seen, you have, you know, it's not, he's not a traditional CEO in that way, you know, or president in that way, but you have seen a lot of corporate turnover only when there's a long accumulation of things. I do think that this episode, the downturn, what he did, that has kind of shortened the overall um, leash that maybe not much, but some that any corporate parent would be willing to tolerate with this before thinking about turnover. But you know, the truth is this, if they get John Jones back and he turns out to be exciting and they can somehow sign Francis and bring him back and you know, I don't know, Connor comes back or whatever, someone else blows up and they're starting to put on big events again. They're doing million pay-per-view buys. People will forget about a lot of this stuff, you know. The question is, to what extent is there ever any connection, and we have no idea if there is, between business decline and then is there a culture that um, is in decline in that corporation that contributes to it? Like, is UFC in corporate decline by virtue of any kind of corporate uh, culture or best practices that aren't getting worked on i i don't know i don't i don't think so it doesn't seem that way but i do think i've I, you know anecdotally i'll put it this way anecdotally i've definitely seen a lot of people being like yeah i watch less these days i'm a little bit turned off how much of that there is i don't know and how much of that you can separate from there's not a lot of active major stars competing it's hard to disentangle all of this as neatly one thing or the other all right let's go back uh, someone says, congrats to blah, blah, blah on the MK stuff. Thank you. Do you think you can talk Brian into your one of your next homework assignments being YouTube watching the raid one or two? Or do you think he was too scarred from the night comes for us to give Indonesian MMA or martial arts, excuse me, movies another shot? Yeah, I mean, the night comes for us is pretty, is pretty gory. It's pretty gory. <laughs> I mean, there's a scene where everyone's chasing everyone else with like a series of butcher knives or you know, knives designed for carving, slicing, axing, uh, sawing, uh, all, all of the various ways in which a blade can either be fashioned or function. And, you know, it's, it's a lot. Watching, if you've never seen The Night Comes For Us, it's not, it's not for children. I mean, I'll put it that way. Um, but it's amazing. It's an amazing movie. Truly a special movie. I don't know if he's got it in him for the raid one and two. I don't know. I don't know. That's how you're asking a lot. <laughs> I mean, I know how good the rate is. And if you've seen it, you know how good the rate is. But, you know, BC, like, has the, he's like, I'm going to go on this military kick during the pandemic. He's like, I'm going to watch all these military movies. And he watched a lot of good ones. But then he came away with like, what was it? Uh, what was the movie he came on when there was a single shot? 19, whatever it was. I forget the name of the movie um it was just a single shot that never breaks he's like this is the best military movie ever i'm like no 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 it's not it's good it's very good it's not mm -mm. there's a lot better ones and i wouldn't put this one necessarily above it in terms of like good movie making but as a good action flick you've never seen black hawk down like my guy you gotta see that shit all right oh what a great question this is Hey, LT, what do you make of Abdul Abduragimov's win over, uh, I guess I'm going to say it wrong, uh, Haratik, Haratik, I'm not sure how you say it, the Lazy King, that's Abduragimov, uh, his grappling was creative and on point in round one, but he was mostly outmatched 
the rest of the fight due to the size disparity and possibly poor conditioning. The knee bar in the last 30 seconds was one of the best comebacks I've seen in a while. How do you think he fares against UFC caliber fighters at 155? I, I've actually got this saved on my phone. Maybe I can show it to you guys without getting picked up by, um, you know, well, maybe not. But I have to put the volume down. So we'll put the volume down. But it kind of ruins it because the call is amazing. So first of all, the dude scores a knee bar in like what? The last like 20, 15 seconds. I don't know what the exact time was in the fifth round up a weight class. So he's already the welterweight champion. He's trying to go for the middleweight title. Yeah. He was down 30 seconds before the fight. It was over. He was down 39-37, 239-36s on this card for Aries FC. Right? Hopeless for him. Up a weight class, the whole nine yards. He pulls out. I'm going to see if I can show it to you. He pulls out. I'm going to wait till he gets. He's, there he is. He shoots underneath for the knee bar. You see that? He shoots underneath for the knee bar. He nearly gets it. Wait, hold on. And then he taps and then he gets it. Yeah. He tapped at with 26 seconds left on the clock in a five round fight. Dude, if you guys haven't been paying attention, I had another, I had a friend of mine out of Europe put me onto him a few months ago, Abdul Abduragimov, now the double weight champion out of Aries FC. He was the welterweight champion. I couldn't believe they weren't picking him up at welter, or excuse me, uh, uh, just as a welterweight champion, especially after his win over Carl Amasu. He beat the shit out of Carl Amasu. Right, which was his last one. Yes, he before that he beat. Uh, by the way, Bellator veteran Carl Amasu, UFC veteran Godofredo Pepe, and he went on and on there. He's got one loss that came in 2019. Uh, I guess by, by a guy by the name of Jara Hussein Al Salawi. Since then, he's been on a goddamn tear, undefeated. Obviously, since then, undefeated in Aries FC, and now a double weight champion, having gone up to capture his second belt. Dude, he is a beast. He is a handful. He is a handful. How far he'll go, I don't know. I, it's hard to say. I mean, welterweight's in a weird stage, and he, he I, you know, is he going to be the best welterweight in the world where Shavkat Rachmanov or Hamzat Shemaev or whatever and whoever else exists? I don't know. We'll have to see. But is he deserving of a UFC call-up? I mean, he's long overdue. He's long overdue. Um, Very, very – what do they have here? How do you think it fares against UFC caliber fighters 155 or 170? Correct me if I'm wrong. I want to see something here. Did I mess that up? The weight? I don't think I did. I believe I had it right. Let's see. Uh, yes, it was a middleweight fight. So you're asking how does he do against 155 or 170? Yeah, I would not want to see. I'll say this. He pulled out a miracle victory in the most unbelievable of ways. Wouldn't want to see him at 185. 170 is a better place for him. If he can make 155, that would be the best. That would be by far the best. Um, but that comeback was incredible. Just out of nowhere, just dropped in for a knee bar and pulled it out. Absolute presence of mind to go for it. Still attacking with just 30 seconds left on the clock. Bet down bad heading into that point. Getting his ass whipped, in, in fact. Amazing. And so how does he fare? I think he's certainly top 10 um, talent, maybe even top five. Hard to say much beyond that. I just I don't know enough. But he's, he's a top 10 guy for sure. For sure. Boy, this is a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't think I do. Luke was wondering, is there a generally accepted minimum standard of strength across the MMA industry? Obviously, fighters have to train for a number of different things, but for specifically strength, are fighters supposed to have, for example, a two times body weight squat? And if so, what are the strength standards for the more conventional lifts? Also, 
just for humor's sake, please view the one reply I have. I don't see any reply there, so unfortunately, I cannot respond to it. I, this is a better question for Phil DeRue. I don't think so. I think most of the concerns are about the capacity for work. Obviously, strength matters, um, but it's more about uh, certain times explosion. A lot of the times, sustained ability to, to work at a high rate. Um, so, you know, cardiovascular output, but as well as uh, with anaerobic components, um, but like outright metrics or thresholds, I don't know. I've never heard of any individual trainers might have some, you know what? I'd love to ask Phil DeRue. I don't know the answer to this question. I'd love to ask him. It's a great one. See what he does with it. So how about that? I'll hit up Phil after this and see what he comes up with. And if he has a good answer, I'll hit you back. How about that? Deal, deal. All right. Look, I'm going to see Pantera in Berlin, although they have just been canceled as headliners. I saw this at two other German music festivals, apparently due to the 2016 situation where Phil Anselmo did a Nazi salute at a show, which he initially said it was about some kind of backstage discussion about wine. He later apologized for it. Um, he got me thinking about the separation of art and artists, about the moral implications of it. I couldn't help but compare it to the MMA world's ability to ignore ab abhorrent behavior. The recent McGregor story being a perfect example. As a fellow fan, does that idea that Anselmo might have questionable views affect your ability to enjoy Pantera's music? It has messed with me a little bit. Um, now, again, he did apologize. And since then, to my knowledge, and someone might know better, to my knowledge, he has been, I think he has largely stayed out of trouble. So I don't know uh, what the fuller picture is. But yeah, if there, there's video of him doing this, by the way, back in 2016. Like, this was not... Um, well disguised <laughs> um the apology do you think it's sincere do you not you know do you think whatever i i don't know what anyone else thinks so here is what it is for me he's touring i did buy tickets i'm gonna take my wife for me there were a couple of things one he apologized two again he stayed out of trouble i've noticed a lot of these people apologize or they kind of half-assed apologize and then they get right back into trouble um, he has stayed out of trouble. So it's been some time and that doesn't by itself, it's not a question about what it means, but it does tell you what it might not mean. And, um, Pantera growing up was my favorite band for long stretches of my life. And I realized that half the members are dead. And so it's almost like a half, it's like half Pantera, half Pantera tribute band playing. It's kind of weird. I'll tell you this much. I don't buy any merch from them. I mean, all of this stuff is like you're trying to just justify motivated reasoning, but I'll tell you where I'm at. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I've really examined this from like a purely ethical lens. I just think that like, what am I comfortable with? I'm not really buying merch. You won't really see me wear Pantera merch. I do have this one that my wife gave me as a gift. I really like. Um, but other than that, like his shirts and stuff like that, I don't really wear any, uh, I, I have in the past, but not in a long time, certainly not, uh, since that incident, at least certainly not in a, in a, in a long while. Um, but if I had already seen them at some point before and I was really happy about it, maybe I'd feel differently, but it's like, this is my, my one and only shot. <laughs> so sort of given the general tenor of things. Uh, I don't feel too bad about going. I talked to my wife about it. She feels roughly the same way. She typically has a good sense about these things. 
So I don't know. I mean, someone else might look at this and come to a very different calculation. I would imagine someone who is Jewish might think differently about it. I don't know. I, I, I don't have a great answer for the very real world situation of like, hey, what do you do when someone did this, but you like their art? You're not going to get a one size fits all answer. For me, the basic idea is that I definitely, I would just like to see them once. You know, I would just like to see them um, with whatever's left of them. And then after that, we can call it a day or whatever. You know, I, I don't listen to them much on rotation these days. It's not like that. But I would, I would, uh, before my life is over, I would like to see them one time. It's sort of how I feel about it. I probably would never see them again after this. And not even like out of protest. I just want to scratch that itch. You know, that's it. Uh, okay. Jose Aldo being inducted into the Hall of Fame so fast after retiring has my has me scratching my head. Well, of course he deserves it, but what about Anderson Silva? Aldo retired like three months ago and Silva almost three years ago. Any thoughts? It's not an accident. <laughs> uh, if they wanted to, they would. Now, there is one challenge to that, and I mentioned it something similar, I think last week or maybe two weeks ago, which is that they may have tried and gotten an icy response from Anderson, in which case they're holding off. But I am two, there's only two good answers here, right? There's only two good answers. You could pick one. Two might even be related, but there's at least two. One, that um, they're super fucking bitter at him for everything he might have been saying. When you might not have thought it was that bad, but they're pissed at him and they don't want to put him in. Uh, not right now, anyway. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that they do want to put him in and he was icy with them, in which case they're just going to put it in a holding pattern until something changes. There's really no other possibility. That I mean, just, I you know, I knew the guy who used to, do the whole ceremony and like how I, I, I got some familiarity with how the process goes and that's what they're waiting on. One of the, one of them is bitter enough at the other to not include them. And Jose's not Jose is in a better state, I suppose with his career or at least with his relationship to the UFC. And so he went in right away. There's not much to it beyond that. Yeah, this one didn't get any likes, but I'm someone. I'm I'm glad someone asked it because I brought it up. The uh, on my Moreno and Figgy breakdown, based on your observation about Moreno circling right instead of left, and how Max Holloway did a similar thing against Jose Aldo. Jose Max did it both directions. Do you think when strategically planning for rematches, do coaches and corners plan for the competitor that they fought in the previous fight, or do you think that they actually make contingency plans in case the competitor does something completely different? We all they, they all make contingency plans. All the good ones make contingency plans. We want to do this. If this fails, if this, and not just like in general, if it fails, if this portion of baiting him fails, if this portion of cage cutting him fails, if this portion of the takedowns from the upper body fail, if this portion of the jab fails, they have things that they want to get to when those don't work. And by the way, they may not be able to implement the B game either. I've seen coaches that have good, or at least on paper, good A and B games and it blew up in everyone's face because they didn't know how much better the opponent had gotten. I've seen that before. It, it, it does happen. But you get the idea. Yes. The very best teams, they have A games, B games, and then also they'll have like an A game, but like an A plus or A minus game 
not in terms of like good or bad, but slight direction or the other. One twist this way, one twist that way. But what you saw from Safe Saud and whoever else came up with the game plan, I'm certainly uh, he was probably a chief architect in it because he's a very bright and talented coach. It was brilliant. They watched the tape, and I guess I didn't go back and watch the first and second one, but when you watch the third one, you can see how many times where Moreno has to be for those strikes to land. You know, he's not like um, he's not like Izzy. He's not like Volk or pick someone you really like as a striker where they can and Connor, like when Connor's really in the zone, where they can cage cut and they can just they can you know they can manufacture what they want out of the guys. Um, and and can be in all different kinds of scenarios and do well or whatever. They have a certain you know way of just working with uh, maybe less so Connor, but you, you know what I'm talking about. People who are malleable, who are chameleons in that way. And then there are other ones where it has to be a very specific set of things you either give to them or take away from them, and it can have pronounced effects, um, positive or negative. So they he must have looked at the tape and been like, yeah, every time you just stand in front of him or move into him, and you know, there's other ways too, but in general, those are the big ones where all the leg kicks were happening. You take away the leg kicks, now he has to resort more to the hands. He resorts more to the hands, especially as you turn, he's trying to follow you as you turn. It just makes him way more predictable. It sets up your takedown. It sets up your exiting. It sets up your ability to counter-strike with the right hand over the top or left of the body right over the top. You saw all the weapons. It sets up all of that shit, and it just cascades, man. There's a lot of times these guys, it looks like they're doing all these things really well, right? Like they're doing, oh, my God, look at that Look at that kind of offense he's throwing and that kind of offense and that kind of offense. But then when you – and sometimes it can be for many different reasons. But sometimes there can be one or two root causes that contributes to something that looks wide-ranging. You unplug one of them, and almost all of it tends to fall apart. You've seen that too. Uh, that's what you've got here. That constant rightward motion, Figueredo just really couldn't cage cut. He couldn't stop the motion. He couldn't challenge it. And so he was a victim of it, and he just got turned by it. He got sucked into it. And uh, you, you saw how it went. <laughs> Not well. Have I been keeping up with the Premier League at all? I know Arsenal's doing really well. I know Arsenal's doing really well. Are there going to be any games while I'm there? I get there on the 7th, and I leave on the 10th. I'd go to a game if it worked out. I don't know what the schedule I, – I, you know, I know Madrid is playing Atletico right now. It's the only thing I keep up with. But, uh, yeah, I'd go, I'd go to a Premier League game. I, I don't even care who. It could be whoever. But it appears that Arsenal no longer sucks ass, uh, which is nice. This isn't a question, but every so often I laugh at wood shampoo. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, wood shampoo. Yeah, folks don't remember. That's what I remember what a Marine once told me was what they call a nightstick used for like crowd control. Um, I think he picked it up from like Guantanamo. I'm not even sure where he got it, but they called it wood shampoo. Yeah, it's very nice, right? It's very, it's a very um, delicate term uh okay if marab could make 125 which he has previously said he can how do you like his chances in that division good very good i think his power would be interesting there i think he's already good power good strength but i think it'd be heightened at 125 i don't think his cardio would be much of a trade-off but i still think no matter what division he's in whether he wants to really maximize his physicality at 125 or not although again he's quite the 
he's he's a hammer at 135 too but you know i guess to, relative to 125 it could be even more so anyway in either case i still think that there's some polishing up of the game that has to happen in either way whether it's sterling i know he wouldn't fight him or whatever but whether it's a champion at 135 or champion at 125 talking about a championship quality fighter even with respective divisions one being stronger than the other in certain cases certainly not everything's going to be as strong as bantamweight but brandon moreno is very very good he's going to be hard to hurt he can he has good power it turns out he is super well-rounded we talked about how well he has how much he has grown by virtue of his rivalry with figueredo so i just feel like you know maybe he could beat a guy like moreno i certainly wouldn't look past that but I think that a guy like that really, no matter which weight class he picks, really has to work on advancing the fight beyond just bland or vanilla punishment that lands positionally that is not memorable, but kind of counts because there's a lot of it. And then there's not a lot of the opposite. Like he needs to have, it needs to, it needs to crescendo. It needs to lead to something. It needs to lead, it needs to, it needs to force reactions. It needs to cause damage. It needs to cause stoppages. It needs to just do things. And whether that's advancing his work positionally, working on ground and pound, work, I mean, whatever the various things he wants to do to get there, fine. But I just feel like there's some polish that has to happen uh, either way because what's the point in cutting that weight if ultimately what you do is you find that it's still a skills issue even, even at the top of the next division? You, you know... It, Work on the skills and then pick your weight class at that point, right? Um, let's see. Luke, are you open to trying out Twitter spaces? Not really. Twitter update. How does everyone feel about Twitter? I will tell you that, like, um, you know, the Elon show early on was not my favorite, but he's quieted down for the most part. There was a report from Ryan Grimm of The Intercept. I don't know if y'all saw this. Uh, Elon censored a uh, a BBC report about uh modi um i believe um so that it could and then by the way d even deleted links to people uh like mps in india uh linking a video that was critical of him um you know just outright total right-wing censorship i mean there's really no other other way to describe it it's just matter of fact right-wing censorship that's what that is now that what's not here in this country so you might feel it very uh, little but i will say in general he has quieted down from his day-to-day -day fuckery where he was just being a jackass. That that has quieted down fine. And I guess I, I told you like what my rubric would be. It's like, what is my daily experience like? Um, how much has it really changed? He put the for you and then the the what's the other one? Like I think it's like for you and following are the two ones that he had, uh, which comes straight from TikTok. If you don't use TikTok, that's exactly where it comes from. Um, I don't mind that. I know a lot of people don't like it. I know some folks think engagement is down. Seems like engagement is down a little bit. Um, but in general, I don't really mind any of that stuff. I don't know how much that was useful or what we needed or that, that it's better. But I don't I don't so much mind it. So I think we're in a better place with Twitter than we were in general a few uh, weeks ago or maybe a couple months ago. It doesn't seem quite as chaotic. It seems like they're trying things that may or may not work but are not just, you know, moronic ideas. However... You know, the staff in Singapore, was it Singapore or Ireland, where they had to get walk out of their building for failure to pay rent? Revenue is down uh, 40% or more. You know, there's some structural issues that he has to figure out. But from a Twitter user's perspective, I paid for Blue um, only because I, I didn't lose my verified badge. I thought I was going to lose it, but I didn't. Uh, but I did lose my ability to 
to get the 10 minute videos. I, I was paying for Twitter blue before when it was like four 99. Um, but I went to go post a video of Jimmy Lennon jr. Introducing Fedor and Verdum. And I was back to the two minutes and 20 second limit. And I hate that. I hate that limit. So I was like, yeah, I'll just pay. I don't really care. Uh, again, it didn't change my, my status. If you want a blue badge, you can go get one. Um, but I like the ability to be able to post a ton of video. However, it takes longer to upload video than it used to. Um, and there's just a few things on the side that don't quite work as well, but in general, it's, it's a fine experience, but, uh, Twitter spaces doesn't interest me. No. Uh, okay. Let's go to this one. Oh, let's see what they say. My primary avenues of MMA news consumption are the renowned award-winning shows of MK, Ariel Show, and a few in between. While I appreciate their hard work and valuable perspective, let me make that more readable. Right there. Okay. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I always found that you guys always tend to single out the UFC when it comes to any type of criticisms, whether they are about fighter pay, insurance, etc. While I totally understand the merits of such criticisms that surface regularly... I rarely hear the same about other promotions, Bellator, PFL, One, Eagle FC, etc. When you guys engage in such often harsh criticisms, while it is far from perfect, why does the UFC have to take all these criticisms on its own, this person writes? Just because they've been around longer and are far more successful than other organizations? At this point, I feel that other promotions have been around for long enough that they should also be subject to the same strict standards to which you guys subject the UFC all the time. Nope. Again, I do understand where the criticisms may come from, but I just hope that they are more balanced, fair, and consistent, regardless of which promotion is more successful, popular, mainstream. No. Yeah, this is what I mean. I, this is, I, it sounds almost exactly what I was talking about earlier. Um, first of all, if you're not hearing the criticism of Bellator, I mean, folks, if you think that because I work at Showtime Digital uh, or CBS Sports that like Bellator loves me, you are very, <laughs> you are very mistaken. Okay, number one. Uh, do I, do I think I'm well, do you think I'm well, seriously, after all the things I've said, do you think I'm well liked at one, like the people that the one corporate office is like, Oh God, here's Luke tweeting about what frauds we are for our stupid ass weigh-in system. Yeah. They must love me down there too. Right. Or Eagle. I mean, they're not even on, I don't even know what to say about them. I, there's nothing to say. Uh, and then PFL dude, like we took a shit on the PFL pay-per-view, not so much for the quality of the talent of the roster, but just for how. I mean, that thing, they they lost a ton of money on that, just to be very clear with you. But, um, okay. Or they didn't sell many pay-per-view buys, I should say, at a bare minimum. But, okay, like, a couple things are wrong with this. One, if you're not seeing the criticisms of the other organizations, I don't really know what to tell you because they push back on us all the time for it. And, I mean, I feel it uh, constantly. I, if you're not seeing it, that I can't say much about it. On the other hand, what I can say is, there is just not going to be as much of it because they aren't as important to the industry. Bellator's success or failure in its current state is not nearly as, I mean, it's not even remotely as important as what happens with the Ultimate Fighting Championship. It is a fraction, a small, small fraction of that organization. All of these ones put together, Bellator, PFL, Eagle, one, add them all up. Do they equal UFC? They don't even come close to equaling UFC. They come up like as... All of them together are a tiny fraction of what the UFC is. Why would we focus the same amount of attention on those players? It doesn't make any sense. More to the point, they aren't necessarily committing some of the same sins. Now, they don't have the same uh, uh, 
resources or in many cases talent or acumen that some of these other you know like that, that ufc might have but for example through court documents we've discovered bellator pays about 47 percent um to their fighters right as in terms of revenue sharing right where ufc is closer to 20 maybe even a little bit less bellator is pretty close to 50 percent already um pfl's whole model particularly on the pay-per-view side is designed to get guys paid in a way that is commensurate with their interests um I don't know what one pays, but they're hemorrhaging money. I suspect that you know some more attention could be paid, but they're uh, the laws are, in, are opaque, and we don't really have a great. There's nothing compelling them to share this information. It's very hard to get. Certainly, some more examination of one's finances vis a vis fighter pay is is would be valuable, but extremely hard to come by. We only have this information about the UFC because, hello, they're being sued for anti-competitive monopolistic practices. I mean, that's why we have much of this information. So partly there is an issue that if you're not seeing it, I can't, I don't know what to tell you. You're just missing it. Two, there are laws in place that are, are I should say, uh, events that have happened that have made access to information asymmetric, but um, I can't do anything about a lot of that. And then three, yeah, there's just not going to be as much. It's not to say that Bellator, PFL, One, Eagle, these are all great. There's no criticisms to make of them, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a million to make. But these are, I mean, just vastly smaller operations collectively together that aren't much of a competitor to the UFC at all. At all. I mean, just think about that. At all. If the UFC has 80, potentially 85% of the world's best talent, that means you have 15% left to share among all those other players you named why the fuck would we focus all of our attention on them or even even a commensurate amount of interest on them it doesn't it doesn't make any sense the everything will flow from what happens with ufc so yeah like if they do dumb shit we'll say something about it right um and to the extent we can uncover more about one's finances we will although they have now moved their financial headquarters to a place offshore i believe cayman islands if i'm not uh, mistaken that they no longer have to declare things that the Singaporean government made them declare. So we're now going to get even less information about the state of their health and finances. But, you know, what can what else can we do? So this argument about, like, you guys don't give it to, the, to other organizations as much. Yeah, why would we? Why would we? It doesn't, it's a waste of time to focus on that in, in large part. Individual acts of fuckery, sure. But in general, it's a waste of time. It, it would be, a, it would be, Silly to do that. Um, let's see here. Uh, regarding your, excuse me, regarding the recent controversy surrounding the Lauren Murphy corner, what? why do you see corner stoppages in boxing but not MMA? You've said before that it happens in boxing because jaded old guys stop fighters from taking too much damage. Well, we see more of these stoppages when MMA fighter corners are made up of, uh, you know, basically other jaded uh old guys yeah there might you might get some of that i mean here's the thing like old dudes just don't give a fuck what you think <laughs> you know what i mean they don't care they don't care they don't care at all they just they're over it and you want to fire them fire them like they just you know it's not like they figured it all out but like it's weird so Okay, so what do they say a generation is, right? A generation is approximately 20 years. And so every 20 years is a new generation. So that means I've lived through two generations, right? My own and then the next one, so 43. 
I will tell you that there's a surprising amount of relearning that the next generation and then the next and then the next and then mine had to do that I wasn't fully aware of or didn't fully appreciate until I watched the second, genera second generation have to do it, where I had to watch lessons get relearned. I remember hearing all of the, I mean, for example, all of the lessons of the Vietnam War and how much it was in our memory bank. And then, you know, and by the way, it was a bunch of old people pushing this anyway, but like, I just sort of mean, I remember like when the Iraq war was being propositioned, I was 23 at the time, 24, 2003, 2004. And I just remember it's like none of the lessons that our generation inherited from the previous one were listened to at all. Like I guess they just didn't care. It had skipped one essentially because mine was actually post, obviously. I was born 1979. There's this relearning that has to happen all the time. Constant relearning, generation after generation. Whatever, if you're if you're 22 right now, there are things that you take for granted as part of like human understanding and like society sort of gets it at this point that the next one will have to relearn. And so when you're my age and you're 42, 43, and you're looking down, and you're looking like 18 year olds or whatever, like the next generation, um, you know, civilization is a learned and somewhat inherited behavior. Uh, so by the time you get to 65, 70, you, I mean, you have seen generation after generation fall prey to not that you're super brilliant, but you have seen them fall for the same thing over and over again. You now know enough to be like, right, I know us, I know. I know how this movie ends. I've, I've I've seen it now 20 times. I can quote it to you. They kind of feel like that. They have that kind of experiential wisdom of just watching subsequent generations have to relearn everything, you know. Um, if in MMA, when in the aughts, when I first started watching, um, well, that's not true. I'd watch in the 90s. But I mean, like as an adult on my own, one of the things that you saw was like and this is still true but less true it's less true today than it used to be but it was very true that a lot of guys corners were completely their peers right so if the guy fighting was 25 all of his cornermen were 25 you know or you know it, it, essentially his peer group and now you're seeing peer groups begin to divide in age a little bit i think the more you get of that the more you might see some change but the other problem with all this and not to rehash it, you know, not to go back to it all the, all the time, but I just think in general, uh, in MMA, we just have a, there's a certain, there are a lot of people in the industry that are comfortable with what I would consider a disconcerting level of abuse. And I think MMA and combat sports, the allure is that it's this marriage of brilliance and science and acrobatics and violence and gore and athletics and human achievement and human character the human spirit it's this it's this mix of all of it and getting that level of what we tolerate and what we don't write it's not so easy um i think the goal is to convince people that the threshold by which they're willing to go is too far like lord murphy was like i signed up for this like don't take that agency away from me and i understand that argument it's a powerful argument the problem with it is is there's a certain level you're just simply not allowed to consent to um, you can't consent to anything. And I'm not saying that's necessarily her argument, but I, my argument is that she is consenting to, in what I consider to be, a level of abuse that the the game shouldn't tolerate. So like the idea that a fight, people, will, people will consent to fight to the death if you let them, but you can't, right? And so obviously it's not just that we're trying to prevent them from fighting to the death. We're trying to prevent them fighting in situations that are needlessly dangerous. That one to me seemed needlessly dangerous.
how do we convince them though of that how do we make that argument that's really to me the the art that's what that's where we have to go and and you know in boxing because the trauma is so much more um directly located you get more deaths you get more deaths and i think that that has played a big role in people's understanding of things you watch a few people die and um you know because their corners or the referee wasn't active enough it, it will change your judgment it will change your judgment all right uh someone says by the way othello is sending me messages from people actually in the chat itself someone saying not enough poeton praise on mk let's see i don't know what the fuck othello sent me messages that don't mean anything i don't even know what to say about this all right let's get to some of these uh okay Look, why do people speak about ref stoppages and refer to outside context? Quote, he let it go longer because it's a title fight. Shouldn't the standards for stopping a fight always be the same? They should. Let's just talk about the real world. They're not, right? What you don't want is an egregious breaking of the rules or um, some kind of sympathetic context introduced where one shouldn't exist. But in the fifth round of a title fight, again, I wouldn't have cared if Goddard had stopped it. I'd be okay. But then Glover comes out and he gets him out and, you know, you're like, well, all right. So he's sort of putting up a fight. Um, and, you know, it's a title fight. It's the last round. You would really only stop it in that case. He's an experienced competitor. You know, you would really only stop it in that case at a point where you, like, it was very much not like, well, you could. It was very much a case where you should. Like, it's time now. Um, and again, he felt differently about it, but I, I understand that. So the answer is, um, in the real world, certain forms of leeway are introduced that I think actually do make judging a little bit more humane or maybe not humane is the right word. Um, they're trying to balance different things. They want to balance not being involved. They want to, you know, referee involvement. They want to balance the integrity of the result. They want to, they want those guys to decide it. You're trying to balance all of those different things at once. I think you can play with that a little bit depending on individual context. You can't play with it a lot, but you can play with it a little bit. Uh, Luke, top five underdog MMA wins. Jesus, uh, you guys asked me for these like lists off the top of my head. I'd have to think about this one. I'm trying to think. Obviously, Sarah over GSP is big. Holm over Rousey is big. Um... <laughs> Ray Mercer knocking out Tim Sylvia. Um, I'm trying to think of like my favorite ones. Um, obviously, those are two of the most historical ones. Who was the one that, let me see. There was one that I really liked back in the day. Um, he actually beat Ali Aquinto. I like Al, but it was a good win. I mean, I give him credit for the win. Mitch Clark. Mitch Clark's win over Ally Aquinta. I mean, it's not historically one of the most significant ones, but it was a, it was a really, you know, that was a big win for him, and he lost three after that and quit the sport, hasn't fought since. So, you know, it was kind of a high watermark for him. Um, trying to think. You know, like from the depths of despair and, like, difficulty. Obviously, um, Yair Rodriguez, Korean Zombie is a big one. That's a huge one. 
yeah i mean i don't know if you, I, stuff like that like what you're i don't have like um there's I, I remember where I was for the Sarah GSP one that was really big, and I remember where I was for Weidman Silva is another big one. You know, these are all big. How do you reflect on your interview last year with Rich Franklin on hydration testing? Saw in the live chat that perhaps you had some more questions. Looking forward to the London show. Hey, look at that. Jason, I believe this is the gentleman from MMA on point, if I am not mistaken. Um, I think Rich is a true believer, but now that we've sort of seen what we've seen, I would like to talk to him again and be like, Rich, can we get down to brass tacks? You know, um, I feel that he gave me answers that he thought were true at the time, but I just don't think the evidence supports anymore. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, thanks for the years of top shelf content with a few who make the swamps were a better place. Would love to see any video content with you and Kareem. I've done some stuff with Kareem. Like we've done video uh, calls. I've had him on. I, I, guys, when I was on the Sirius XM, I had him on all the time, all the time. Um, so I would love to in the future. We're just waiting for the right opportunity, but yeah, I've had him. I featured him many, many times. I had him on the, when I was on the MMA hour, I had him on the MMA hour. Um, and we had, we talked about managers on the MMA hour with Kareem. Like we did that. So, you know, like people like, I would love to see some content, buddy. We made some have a gander. Uh, let's see. Chance for an MK and MMA on point collab. Maybe maybe we'll see uh ubc and uh dh coming out to arsenal spurs and chelsea jerseys in london on stage wheel of death ps bc should absolutely not address anyone from scotland wales or ireland as uk plus first of all he's going to i know he shouldn't i i told him not to do that i told him not to do that he's gonna do it i'm just telling you he's gonna do it i know this man he is going to do it um no i'm not gonna wear an arsenal or spurs or chelsea jerseys i'm not i don't I don't care about these teams, but um, we got some fun stuff planned. We got some fun stuff planned. I think we had a we had an hour and a half long meeting about some of this stuff yesterday. So we're gonna have a good time. It's gonna. I'm telling you, you're gonna have a good time if you come out on Wednesday, that Wednesday, February eighth. All right. Uh, how do you balance creating the content while also digesting the content? Keeping up with the news while creating the content is challenging for me. Yeah, it's challenging for me too, and it's my job. There's only so many hours in a day. This will go till about 4.30, right? And then I have to do another test for work on some of this new equipment that I have for tomorrow's show. Then at 5, I have to look after my daughter. She goes to bed at 8, and then I have to go back to work to prep for tomorrow's show. Like, it's never-ending. It's never ending. I think one thing is I try to do work that serves as a better. Here's one thing I realized. I realize that every time I do it, but it just is a good reminder. When I break down like a Moreno versus Figgy fight, which I did again um, for the most recent technical difficulties, it, it, it helps me remember better than just kind of reading someone else's analysis or just listening to it or or reading about something, it doesn't stick to me as well. Doing the actual work of sinking my teeth into the fight, making my own notes, going back, editing the footage, making the presentation, recording it, delivering it to you, watching it back, it ends up being this much more immersive experience in terms of like the memories I can create from it. So it's like doing the kind of work that really aids in long-term memory or um, just gives you keener understanding about how to know about fighters or fights or moments in time whatever your strategy may be that's one strategy for me that has i think i've found to be the best thing because if i just if it just washes over me like the waves of the shore some of it will collect some of it won't you know it's not 
it's very, very difficult to make that work. It's very generous thing. So, oh, from Chevy. No wonder he <laughs> he's from Chevy Chase, Maryland. That means he's rich, folks. I don't know if you know that. Or at least well-to-do, I'll put it that way. I don't know who this gentleman is, Kevin, but thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. Enjoy your nice condo or home in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Bro, Chevy Chase, Maryland is like... It's very nice. It's a very nice area. Okay. Like it's right by Bethesda. This is where doctors and lawyers live and shit like that. You know, lots of bagel shops, um, labradoodles. You know what I'm talking about? That's Chevy Chase, Maryland, uh, right outside the city. But I, I appreciate you. I'm, I'm, I'm largely teasing a, a little bit. All right. Uh, let's see from Michonne. I don't know. Uh, RSD with Sanko and BC part about why you don't do about why you do what you do when did you realize people cared about your opinions besides mma e pass blah blah blah. when they started demanding it when they started demanding it when there would there'd be a demand for it and a demand that like far outstripped what even i would consider to be a modest response i'd be like all right well there's a response and i'll i'll get to it but there just won't be and then there just would be and i'd be like well fuck it okay you know like that's the invite the invite is they made it clear that they wanted it um at least on some portion of it by the way othello and i had a call yesterday to like strategize for the year ahead and what we're looking to do and whatnot call on tuesday excuse me today is thursday and uh one thing we're toying with is the idea of memberships some of you have said that you like you'd want other topics discussed from just mma on a chat i don't want to change the chat like what it is is what it is which is a mix but it's predominantly just combat sports stuff. I'd like to keep it that way. What I would say, though, is how many of you are interested in memberships if what it meant was like private chat channels, uh, chat, uh, like in terms of like like you and I riding back and forth or uh, one extra chat a week or some kind of other videos that were not about combat sports, but they were just about that. Would you pay for a membership for that? And again, I want to be clear, like if you're not interested in it, by all means, say I would not. Like, just let me know. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Trust me. But if there is interest in it, that is something that Othello and I are toying with as potential ideas. And there's all different things you can do with channel memberships. But um, if a membership sounds interesting to you, it sounds interesting to us potentially as well. Something we're thinking about. I know you're in touch with some Diaz crew guys, so maybe you can have an idea on this. Where the hell is Crone? I don't know. Let me ask. Let me ask about the uh, strength standards, and then let me ask about this one. I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know. Thank you, Michael. Uh, how well would Jake Paul do against the top 10 cruiserweight? Not well. Badu Jack is IBF number 10. Can't wait to see you guys London. Badu Jack's a little long in the tooth at this point, um, but I don't. I think that'd be a bridge too far. That's a bridge too far. I'll tell you what, man. People like want to shit on Jake like, I think a lot of fans are just kind of sick of him and just want to tune him out. So I don't know how the PFL thing is going to do. I'm not going to watch this fight against Tommy Fury. Certainly not live. I might have to, I, when I say I'm not going to watch it, like I have to watch almost everything just because it's my job. So like in that sense, I'll watch it, but I'm not going to like take time out of my day to go watch it. You know, I don't care that much, but I will say, man, like I think you're wrong. If you don't have a little bit of respect for him, not in the stupid, like, I have respect for everybody who gets in there. It's like, well, in a sense, I do. I'm not so sure that's 100% true, but okay. But that's like a very generic, basic level of respect that, yeah, fine. That doesn't tell me much. Um, you know, I don't think he can be the top 10 guy. I don't think he can be the top 15 guy. I'm not even sure he can be a top 20 or 25 guy. But 
his level of improvement is genuine and that really only comes with like years of hard work i'm not gonna say he's great i'm not gonna say you have to watch i'm not gonna say any of that stuff but you know the way he outboxed anderson was like commendable it's commendable um so i i don't i i don't like i don't seek out that like what he's doing with tommy fury is not interesting to me but i definitely don't feel like um Oh, this imposter is just trying to, you know. Well, I'm not sure what he's trying to do, but I have a begrudging level of respect for like what he's been able to put together. Like, I'm not, I don't hate the guy, you know. I think he's fairly talented and certainly hardworking, and he's doing a little something for himself, you know. That's it. Either you're a customer or you're not, but um, he's put together a little something. Do you think the newish bias towards striking in the judging criteria puts Jones at a disadvantage? Only if he can't wrestle. And I don't know if he can wrestle. I do not know if John Jones can still wrestle. This is so interesting. If you look at things I've seen on message boards and like fans on social media, anecdotal, take it for what it's worth, there's basically like two camps around this. One camp is that John hasn't been able to wrestle for a long time. We've been screaming about this. People haven't been paying attention, and you're going to see that when he fights gone. The other one is, okay, yeah, he kind of flagged at the end there, but, you know, that's just a temporary moment in time, and it wasn't that bad of a decline, and he's going to get right back where he was before, and blah, blah, blah. And I will be very curious to see who's right in that one. I will be very curious. I would really, really, I cannot wait. That Of all the debates that I want to see settled, that's the one I want to see settled the the most. I want to see who was, who was right about that and what they used to to prove they were right to show almost show me your work i want to see that that's of all the things like you know winning not winning whatever i want to see that will it ever get to the point in mma where you have to start at an age of five or six in order to make it in ufc the way it is with soccer probably not like that but um you know with jujitsu like the ruotolo brothers you see um, you know, they've been training essentially in that way. Right. And now they're, uh, young, oops, excuse me. And now they're young adults and, um, they're out there kicking everyone's ass basically. Right. For the most part. So, uh, you might see them start earlier, but remember you can't really fight until you're 17, but really 18. And if you start taking punishment at 18, you'll be done by 30, 31, 32. Like you can't take punishment that early and then last that long. So you might, in the sense of like, they'll get into no-gi grappling at that age, they won't do strikes to the head, they'll get into golden gloves boxing or whatever. But just understand, you can't hide from the fact that if you start taking abuse from grown men in terms of like strikes absorbed and whatever else at age 18, you're going to exit the sport earlier. You get into the sport early, you're going to get out of it early. Just the way that it goes. Look, I've served at 20 years in the Army, starting as an NCO, a non-commissioned officer, now an officer. Okay, I have no intention of retiring soon. I have a significant concern about reintegration into civil life. I would love to hear your experience. Well, I didn't serve 20 years and I wasn't I was an NCO. I was not an officer because I had joined the military prior to finishing college. I had joined in high school and uh, I, I've often told the story, but I graduated high school on a Friday. I went to boot camp on a Monday. I graduated boot camp on a Friday and then went right to college, like nothing in between. It was just boom, 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 right back to back to back. And then in the summers, I would do temporary active duty, basically, or go to the schools that I had missed. 
Um, I had to do MCT separately. I had to do my MOS school separately. Then I had to do a couple of CAXs, a combined arms exercise out at uh, 29 Palms, California. Um, but, you know, I lived basically a civilian life most of the time. Yeah, I, I, I understand the integration, the reintegration part. I've seen people um, have some difficulty with it. But really, the best idea was, like, if you're not ready, don't. Uh, now, uh, if they're forcing you out, then that's different. I don't know if they're forcing you out, but if they're not forcing you out, don't push to get out. But the ones I've seen do the best form of, of integration into civilian life were ones that began to build a life in the civilian world. They would be parts of churches that were not on base. They would be parts of athletic clubs that were, you know, I, I go running with this group and it was just all civilians. They would date someone that wasn't in the military. They would, they would line up a job for themselves um, or, you know, uh, were, were, operate in some kind of circle where they had could leverage existing civilian relationships. But the reality is you have to start building a life in the civilian world. Um, if everything you do is on base or, again, leverage your military contacts too, uh, and leverage those relationships and leverage all that skills, like all that's all the skills, those are great. But uh, if your life has been utterly divorced from the civilian world, you, the military is not going to let you stay forever. You have to begin to build a life outside of that. You have to begin to build a life in that way. And, you know, like anything, it is uneasy and difficult at first. But um, do you have a choice? Not really. So do it. Do it. What, why has an expert with your martial arts acumen not talked about Jailton Almeida? I did. Talked about him on Fight Night. This phenom is an eventual UFC champion. It's remarkable they started at welterweight. Can you break down his flaws? Don't know about his cardio at, uh, at light heavyweight. I guess we'll have to see. But uh, I tweeted about him on Saturday night when he fought, which was he reminds me of the quote that Joe Silva had around Frank Mir, which is Frank Mir is what happens when technique meets horsepower. Now, Frank Mir is a very different kind of grappler than Jelton Almeida, a very different time in MMA, but he's got a lot of that where he's just a fucking brick shithouse, but his technique is smooth, clean. You know, and part of the reason why you want to use smooth technique and clean technique is not only does it work better, but it also preserves energy better. It, you know, it's just much more, more mechanically efficient. Uh, and it just also means you have a certain level of care about your own craft and about the way which you approach the, approach the sport. He's got all of that. Plus, he looks like a fucking bodybuilder. You know, he's a problem. Like he beat the shit out of uh, Abdur Rakimov. Uh, and Abdur Rakimov is not a top, not like a very, very top class heavyweight. But to make him look as like effortlessly dismissible as he did, that was impressive. So let's see how far he can go with something that. I don't know how scalable his um, athletic profile is. I think there's some questions about that. But um, from a skill standpoint, he's terrifying. Thank you, Coffee Lover. Secrets of the World album by Trapped Under Ice. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Uh, is it crazy to think the current Bantamweight division might be the best roster in MMA history? Top 15 is full of skilled athletes. So here's a question. Which which div, which roster on which division? Excuse me, on which roster in which division has been the best ever? Like which at a moment in time, if you took a snapshot, what roster was the strongest? I don't know. Pride's two hundred five roster was pretty strong at a moment in time. Um, UFC's one fifty five was strong at a moment in time, but certainly the current state of bantamweight is up there with one of the all time rosters. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, 
Looking forward to London for excellent cocktails. Please come to 100 Wardour in Soho. I work the doors there. Okay. Let's check out the cocktails in 100 Wardour. Let's see. Let's, what do those look like? This is like a gay club. <laughs> I'm going to laugh. All right. Let's see what we got here. Let's take a look at uh, the old cocktails. What do we have here on the old Google pictures? Looks very brown. Look at this food here, huh? All right. It looks a little... Look at this English food. Y'all don't know what you're doing with Latin food, huh? Uh, salmon looks good. I'll say that. Yeah, it looks all right. Some of the cocktails. Yeah, there's some of these cocktails. They look all right. Not bad. Not bad. Here, let's filter for cocktails. Oh, look at this. Hey, you know what? So, I like a little vermouth. The thing is, I don't really drink hardly at all anymore. So, you know, I don't know how much drinking I'm going to do in London, but they look pretty good. They look pretty good. <sighs> Pardon me. More questions about Jelton Almeida. Jesus. Give me three fighters that should jump two or more weight classes. That should? Uh, Henry Cejudo, maybe, if he can... We'll see how he looks. Um, it's going to have to be on the smaller end, right? The vast majority of them. Connor went in 145, so 170. Connor, he's already been there, but like really good fighters in 170 is maybe a possibility. And then I would go, dude, you know who's already done it is uh, Jessica Andrade. Fucking hammer. Uh, not sure if you've seen it, but the way the coaches try to meticulously break down power slapping as if it's an actual martial art with a wide breadth of skill to understand is downright hilarious. I've not seen it, but it's if, if it's what you're describing that sounds shameful. I don't really know what to say. Um, I'm sure, like anything, there are best practices to it, but they're all relatively marginal in terms of what actual sport is constitutive of. Any opinion on the Steven Crowder Daily Wire beef? Um, how is Steven Crowder making NFL qu quarterback money? <laughs> like, I'm not even, I'm not mad at it. I've said this before. I, I don't agree with the, almost any political view he's ever held, but Steven Crowder and I, and Jamie Kilstein tried out for a TV show called MMA now that was supposed to air on uh, fuel TV. And I actually got the job. I got hired for it. But then, like, two weeks later, Fuel TV was purchased by Fox Sports, and it became, I think, Fox Sports 2 or something like that. And mine, I had I had shot a pilot for it. Like, Josh Barnett was in the pilot. Like, it was a whole thing. Maybe one day I'll show it to you guys. I still have I still have the footage. Um, and it just went up in smoke. I got that gig. But then he blew up well past that. I think he's got, like, millions of followers now. But even with that, dude, he ain't making – you know, what was it, a 50 million for like four years or something? Did I understand? Or maybe it was five. I don't remember. We're talking like 10, 12 plus million, whatever the, I don't know what the years are. We're talking like an extraordinary, dude, this fucking, like, that's, there's no way his show generates. I mean, I, if you can get, understand what I'm about to say. If you can get that money, go get it. Not mad at it. But there's no fucking way you can tell me he generates that amount of money. That seems to me that there are, one of the things that is just true of right-wing billionaires is they love to fund causes even if they're not making money as a way to win the influence and intellectual and idea culture wars. 
you cannot possibly fucking tell me $50 million is like money they could pay him and then sell ads against it or memberships and make that money back for either, either after four or five years. Like not, a, not a chance, not a chance. That's true. Not a chance, not a chance at all. None, zero. Um, so there must be some kind of other benefactor relationship happening here. And again, if someone came to me with 50 million over whatever it was, four or five years, uh, you know, and I, I, I could tell you, MK ain't, <laughs> it ain't going to generate, you're not making your money back on 50 million. I'm just, you know, like, you know, Joe Rogan might be able to get you your money back. Like that's how big you have to be. You have to be fucking, you know, even that, you know, I know he has a hundred million dollar deal for a much longer time frame, whatever, but you get what I'm saying? Like, that's an absurd fucking amount of money uh, beyond well what any kind of show he could do, even with his sizable audience could generate. Um, so I just don't understand why he really went public with it. I, I, I've, I've not followed it closely. Um, I did see the response from the Daily Wire guy, not Ben Shapiro, whoever the other one was, who was like walking him through. By the way, he also noted in his response, he's not sure that um, Steven's ever turned a profit in any of the shows he's ever done and that he wasn't independent, which again, I, they can, they can, I'm not here to pick on one side or the other. Like neither represents my political views very accurately. It does seem to me this Daily Wire made him an extremely generous offer. I understand some of Crowder's apprehension based on the way his show goes, that if you're tied to what the tech oligarchs deem to be acceptable, that you are running a risk of losing revenue or even revenue channels, um, means of collecting it, right? If they shut down all the things that they shut down or if they, they can shut down your channel on top of it. I can understand some of the apprehension around that, but folks, I got to tell you, $50 million <laughs> for the amount of time, whatever the length of the contract was. Let me look that up. How long was that contract? Uh, just so I know, Daily Wire offer, Steven Crowder. How, how, how big was that? Uh, okay. So according to Forbes, hold on. Let's see here. Uh, this guy, Bo Boring, is spelled B-O-R-E-I-N-G. That's the guy with the beard. He kind of looks like me. I saw his response. Quote, Stephen's philosophy appears to be, I deserve to be paid millions and millions and millions of dollars, whether my show drives the revenue or not. That's not a business relationship. He's looking for a benefactor. Yeah, I got to wonder where, where Daily Wire is getting the money for that too, to be quite candid, in, in all fairness. I can understand why he might feel that way, actually. Uh, yeah, $50 million over the course of four years. So what is that? Twelve and a half million, right? Basically, twelve and a half million. Twelve and a half million, dude. There's just no plus whatever the cost of the staff and the production time and everything else. There's there's just no way they'd make that money back. I just don't believe that. So I can understand why Stephen would want a benefactor relationship. But folks, let me just put this out to you: if anyone wants to sign me for fifty million dollars for four years, the answer is yes. <laughs> like, where do I sign? You know, Luke, you have to shovel elephant dung every morning. Deal. Where the fuck do I sign for that? Yes. You have to change the name of your show to Luke Thomas Sucks. Deal. Fucking deal. Deal. Uh, Miguel writes, I love your big boy words, big T. Spanish is my first language, and you've taught me more than my English teacher. Blackhawk Down or Hurt Locker? Ooh. 
Black Hawk Down or Hurt Locker? Um, Hurt Locker was more of an attempt to get to the human side of things, whereas Black Hawk Down was more of like a fun action movie. So they're slightly different. I'll say I'll say Hurt Locker more of a movie, but uh, Black Hawk more of a, a you know uh, elevated film, and Black Hawk Down better action film. Black Hawk, Black Hawk Down better action film. Big Luke, on an 8 to 10 scale, what role does media press play in fight prep? For example, Edwards is now conducting a heavy press run while Usman has been training back in Colorado. Will this be a factor? Only if it becomes distracting or overwhelming. That's when I saw it. I remember that I interviewed I interviewed St. Pierre just before the Johnny Hendricks fight, and he misunderstood a question that I had. And I've, I've interviewed St. Pierre, like anyone my age who's been in it long enough has, you know, a dozen times. I mean, you know, a bunch. And this was the only time he ever snapped at me. I don't. I think I still have the audio somewhere. He snapped at me because he he didn't understand what I was saying. Once I clarified it, he understood. He wasn't he wasn't trying to be a dick, but he was done, burned out, didn't want to do it anymore. Your question is about does that play a role in fight prep? To the extent it becomes a distraction, either it ruins your day, it gets in the way of training time contributes to feeling of burnout, motivation to train, which you might be like, how could it do that? Dude, the same questions over and over because the UFC is going to have stuff they want you to answer. There's going to be stuff your manager has lined up for you. Who else knows what's out there? You have to travel to stuff, answer the same questions. Some stuff you want to reveal, some stuff you don't. And you might have to do this day after day after day after day after day. Yeah, that can that can wear. Championship level media press tour stuff is no joke. It's no joke. I can understand that why that could actually interfere whether it will probably not um but it could look with adcc leaving flow sports and now will be popular excuse me and now will be under ufc fight pass what do you think is the ceiling for popularity for grappling so there's two schools of thought on this one one is that you know this is by the way this is devastating for flow sports I, you know, and it's anecdotal, but there are a lot of people who fit my profile, which is that I didn't want to pay for a membership, but I would just to watch ADCC. And um, I don't have anything against flow grappling, but, um, you know, and they are very much in the Gordon Ryan business, as far as I can tell. I think they just signed a, like a, a deal with him. But um, ADCC, and by the way, by virtue of Gordon's participation, is by far the most popular thing in jujitsu. Again, more evidence that like drugs and sport are uniformly bad. Just not true. Just totally bullshit. Not true. Not supported by the evidence. You can see it for yourself. You cannot tell me that the outrageous physiques and the outrageous levels of performance based on some of their performance enhancing drug use has not contributed to its popularity and its popularity has not contributed to being an attractive uh, you know, item for fight pass. Like, come on. It's all connected, please. Okay. But that aside, um, it's devastating for flow sports because it's such an anchor programming. How far could it go? Uh, one interpretation is that the UFC is really going to lean into this. They're going to be uh, broadcasting the trials as well. I think that it could be po as popular or more popular as like mid-tier UFC events and or bigger. Like it could be really big. It could be one of the biggest combat sports events of the year. Um, well, that's a little strong. Um but, you know, they're already selling like 15,000, 20,000 tickets, something close to that, the Thompson Max Center, to put this on. You could imagine it being T-Mobile. I don't know. But, you know, the National Wrestling Championships every year are in a big arena like that. You could potentially do that. Like, yeah, is that possible? I suppose it's possible if they do it the right way and they really build it up. There is some concern I've seen from other members of the grappling community that 
the UFC has used Fight Pass to purchase other assets, even in terms of grappling, and then not really done a lot with it. EBI, I think some folks say, has withered on the vine as a consequence. So it really will be a function of not just being on Fight Pass, but what the UFC does to promote it beyond just broadcasting it. I guess we shall see. I guess we shall see. Uh, I know you said the tripod trip, tripod sweep, trip, whatever, is a basic BJJ move, but he did it on Figgy in the first fight and then Asker Askarov. It just looks like such a slick and cheeky move. I mean, listen, he's really good at it, right? He understands exactly how to set it up in moments. He has a good eye for when guys are going to walk into it and they're not going to... Now people will be expecting it, I think, a little bit more readily. Also, I made an error on my thing where I said, well, like, if you do one of these, it's you know you don't have control over the other person. That's true, but I forgot that, like, the way they do teach it is once you get the... the, the there's, so on Figueredo, if you're Brandon Moreno, you had one hand behind the heel, this foot in the hip, this other foot behind his other foot, Right. The one that's cupping the heel, not only do you pull on it when you push on the same side hip, you're actually supposed to collect it and then stand up as they fall down and then you come up. You're actually supposed to collect it and then you now you have their foot to collect. He didn't collect it. He just pushed so hard with it, he just lost control. But the idea would be to collect it on the rise up. I'm, I misstated that part, which I, for which I apologize. Yeah, again, basic doesn't mean like bad. It just means... Uh, a, a, typically a sophisticated grappler or jiu-jitsu player should not be a victim of something that is relatively obvious when you set it up but he's so quick and his identifications of when you can use it is so fast i think and also people just don't expect that kind of thing in mma because it's taught to you so early it just he's threading a very thin but real needle my college friend recently moved and it's been a struggle to keep in touch maybe they're super busy but the lack of contact is tough advice you should ask them about the lack of contact. You don't have to be weird about it, but just be like, hey, man, is there a reason we talk less beyond just being busy? Have a direct conversation. There's nothing you can't figure out with just having an honest conversation for the most part. I mean, if they continue to lie to you, that's one thing, but just talk to them. Talk to them about how you feel. Um, don't be whiny. Don't be needy, but tell them how you feel. Where do you see your career in 10 years? I don't know. And I'm scared to tell you because I don't really want to jinx it. Brian and I, BC and I, had a conversation about it yesterday. I am frightened to tell you. Not because I'm worried, but because I I have hopes and I don't know whether to share them or not. You know, We all do. There's things I'm working on. I'll put it that way. There's things I'm working on. I really hope I get an opportunity to see them through. Uh, Luke, I'm going to... Here we go. Going to see Dying Fetus for the first time on the 7th here in Dublin. Flying over to MK on the 8th, yes! By the way, they play London on the 10th, but I'm leaving on like 4 o'clock that day, so I'll miss it. That's awesome, bro. You're going to love Dying Fetus. That's a brutal-ass show. Would you be able to look at the price of merch and delivery? It's a lot, including flat rate shipping. I think if you're in the UK, if you can show up to the pod recording, we're going to have merch there. Pretty sure that's true. I need counseling. I enjoy power slap. You don't need counseling. You just need to realize that you probably have the palate of a toddler. You know. <laughs> uh, yes to membership, this person writes. Also, who wins? Prime Rampage, Prime Rumble. Ooh, because Prime Rampage had a fucking chin on him. Um, Rampage. I think Rampage can withstand the punishment. He had good boxing defense and I think would wear down 
uh, Rumble. But that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Favorite type of pizza? I don't eat a lot of pizza these days. Um, are we talking like like just like delivery type? Like not like we're not talking like artisan pizzas or some shit, right? We're talking. I would say I like a Detroit style. I like jalapenos and pepperoni. That's what I like, bro. I like. That's my thing. Luke, when did you realize Darren Till walked out to the Andrew Tate theme song and constantly tweets him support? I don't follow Darren Till. So I'm just finding out about this now. And I would like to tell you that I'm surprised by it, but I'm not. So thoughts on the fact that Volk entered the sports later than other greats. Uh, he has just been an enormously fast learner, uh, a sponge, and also the beneficiary of having guys around him who had advanced ideas about the game. And he was just a great student for it. You know, he had a natural aptitude, right? And he worked hard. Don't be like, oh, he had natural aptitude. He just got good at it no matter what. No, 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 no. He worked at it. But uh, just a natural aptitude. Thoughts on veganism and animal rights. Will more athletes make ethical decisions regarding diet and disprove the falsehood that animal products are needed for performance? It's true. They're not needed at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a vegan um, by virtue of the fact that it's very difficult for me to for me, understand what I'm saying. For me, it's very difficult for me to uh, get the protein intake that I need and eat in a way that is sustainable. Um, I try to limit animal protein and whatever animal protein I buy, I try to make sure I get it from like a farmer's market or um, whatever I can. But um, yes, I basically believe, uh, I don't believe that you should never eat meat, but I very much believe that factory farming is deleterious for small farms. It's deleterious for the environment. It's deleterious for animal welfare. We have basically created an animal hell in which we subject millions of animals to every year that is without, um, in any sense, morally justifiable at all. Uh, beyond that, the powers that be have created what's called ag-gag laws that have prevented um, folks from uh, ethically reporting or even getting information about the state of animal welfare on their properties on these vast farms with, with, by, by using powerful lobbying and corporate interests. And um, this is totally bad for everyone involved. Um, and so for folks who want to reject all of that and find ways around it, and they're able to meet their sport-specific needs, which, by the way, you can very much do, I certainly applaud them. I think I would add a little bit of leeway that, you know, um, it's not going to work for everyone. No single diet does. Uh, and this is less about that, more about like making your diet a platform for your views of ethics. But nevertheless, uh, I think that the less meat you can eat, the better. Uh, certainly, certainly factory meat, factory farms. I mean, the less of that you consume, the better for everybody. And I generally agree that the moral precepts behind their beliefs are um, smart and justified. Uh, what more can this army of donks do to push you and MK Brian and Brian's wandering eye to greater heights? Just continue to support what we're doing and please trust our vision. Everything else is just gravy. I'm a blue belt and I got a job at my jujitsu school for enrollment director slash kids coach. Any advice? I've never done sales, but do love. So here's what I'm going to guess. This gentleman, uh, got trains at this gym and he might get paid some, but what he is mostly being paid to do is a job in the gym. This is common in jujitsu gyms. The people who work in the gyms train in the gyms either at a reduced price or for free or 
they don't get paid, but they don't have to pay for training or some some kind of combination of bartering, right? That goes on in there. This is super, super common. Any advice? I've never done sales. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Every school does like 30 days free or, you know, whatever. First week free. That seems like a smart policy. Um, I have no clue. Good luck. Any tips for the days leading up to a weight cut? 2% away from the goal and weigh in is five days away. You should ask someone who's a specialist in this. That's not me. But I wish you good luck as well. I'm sorry. I would, if I had anything meaningful to give you in terms of help, I would. I just don't. All right. Uh, okay. I believe that is it. I uh, want to remind you. Here we go. Get your tickets to come see us February 8th live in London. You can go to pod-live.com for tickets or you can put your phone up to this here. This here qr code you can do that and then you can come see me and brian and have a great time on february 8th maybe our one time to come do it. it's going to be awesome so come check that out this podcast will be up tonight on the podcast platforms i appreciate you guys watching thank you so much and until next time stay frosty bitches yes